Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, and we are in chapter 2, verses 6 to 7 this morning, and I will read um, beginning in cha- at the beginning of chapter 2 for context, Colossians chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words which the Apostle Paul wrote, and which have not only instructed the believers at Colossae and how they are to walk, but have instructed your church ever since. And continue to instruct us. Lord, help us to listen, help us to understand, help us to remember, help us to apply your word to our lives, that we may live and grow to be more pleasing to you. I pray that my words would be your words, and that your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts of your people for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. There are several metaphors in the New Testament which describe the Christian life. And uh, interestingly enough, most of them are used by the Apostle Paul. For instance, uh, he speaks of the Christian life as a battle or spiritual warfare in 1 Corinthians 10 and verses 3 to 5. And he tells his uh, disciple Timothy to wage the good warfare in 1 Timothy 1.18 and to suffer hardship as a good soldier in 2 Timothy 2.3. He also speaks of Epaphroditus as his fellow soldier in Philippians 2.25 and tells Timothy, at the end of his life, that he has fought the good fight in 2 Timothy 4.7. And it's also in that passage that he says that he has finished the race, which is another metaphor. He uses the metaphor of a battle, spiritual warfare, soldiering, fighting the good fight. And then he also uses this metaphor of running a race or of an athlete, which not only describes the Christian life, but he uses it to explain his ministry in 1 Corinthians 9, and verses 24 to 27. He also uses this metaphor of an athlete as an object lesson for Timothy concerning the ministry in 2 Timothy 2.5. And we see this metaphor of running a race used by the author of the letter to the Hebrews to describe the marathon, which is the Christian life in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 to 2. The Apostle Peter uses the metaphor of a sojourning or a journey to describe the Christian life in 1 Peter 2.11. 
And so we, we see these metaphors. We, we kind of understand them. We get them, uh, especially if, if you have been a soldier or an athlete or a sojourner. You understand these metaphors of spiritual warfare, of soldiering, of an athlete, of running a race, of sojourning. However, the most common metaphor used to describe the Christian life in the New Testament is that of a walk, which is very fitting because it's a common routine action and behavior. And it's interesting, if you know someone well enough, you can distinguish them by their walk. You, you live in a house with, uh, or wherever you grew up, and uh, you know, if you have siblings or uh, other family members, and, and I, I remember living in, in um, houses which were two stories, or, and, and you would hear somebody in the second floor walking. You know who that, that's Bob. That's Susie. <laughs> that's Mom. That's Dad. Because you know their walk. You know their gait. You know the, the, the cadence they make when they walk. It, it, it's a wonderful metaphor because we, we can distinguish people by their walk. And Paul uses the term walk here in Colossians 2.6 as he does in many other places in the New Testament to teach the Colossians how they are to live as believers. One commentator writes this, he says, Walk is the familiar New Testament term denoting the believer's daily conduct. And there's so many verses, just a few in, in Colossians 1.10, 4.5, Romans 6.4, Romans 8.1, Romans 13.13, 13, 1 Corinthians 7.17, 2 Corinthians 5.7, Galatians 5.16, Ephesians 2.10. 1 John 1, 6, many others. Many passages that, that, that show that to walk as a Christian is to walk in Christ and is to live a life pattern after his life. And here in this passage, in Colossians 2 and 6 and 7, we see that the Apostle Paul is exhorting the Colossians to walk in Christ. And he does that by explaining four characteristics of that pattern of life in which they are to live. Four ways in which they are to walk, and by way of implication, four ways in which we are to walk. First, he says in verse 6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. We are to walk as you received Him which what he tells the Colossians, walk as you received him, which raises a question, how did you receive him? How did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior? There's a common saying in um, evangelicalism and, and in our evangelism to accept Jesus into your heart, <laughs> which is found nowhere in the Bible. <laughs> but we do have a place, a verse in the Bible which says to receive him. It talks about receiving Christ. In, in John chapter 1, uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, John writes this in chapter 1, verses 11 to 13. He says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people didn't receive him. 
So what, 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 makes me, what makes us think that others will receive him? And John goes on and he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how, how did you receive him? How do we receive him? As this verse says, it's, it's not by the will of flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. It's, we, we received him by the power of the Spirit. As Jesus would later go on to explain how one comes into the kingdom, how one is, becomes a believer, how one receives him, that they must be born again. As Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and asks him, about who he is and about the kingdom of God, Jesus answers him in John chapter 3 and verses 5 to 8. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We received Him by the power of the Spirit, by being born again. We received Him in regeneration, being made new. Jesus goes on later to explain this in John chapter 6 and verse 63. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Our works are no help at all. Our, our, our pleading, our giving, is in a sense no help at all. Yes, we are to call upon God while He is near. We are to cry out to Him. We are to seek Him while He may be found. But if we've received Him, if we are born again, it's because He did a work in us. It's because of the power of the Spirit. We received Him by the power of the Spirit in regeneration, in union with Him, being united with Him. This mysterious union of the believer with God is explained in Romans chapter 6, how we are one with Christ and we are one with God. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 to 5, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The, the, the power of the Spirit in receiving Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. He takes out that heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh that, that wants to seek God and, and, and feel its way towards Him and to know Him and to, to call upon Him. The Spirit gives us life and the Spirit unites us with Christ who uh, in going to the cross took on our sins and His body on the tree. He became sin for us so that we would be forgiven and would receive His righteousness. 
the great exchange. And, and in that great exchange, we are united with him by the power of the Spirit. So that Paul would go on to say in Romans chapter 8 and verses 9 to 11 that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We received Him by the power of the Spirit. And therefore, if you received Him by the power of the Spirit, then you are to walk in Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 that we are not to um, carry out the deeds of the flesh no more, but we are to walk in the Spirit and to bear fruits of the Spirit. As he goes on in that chapter to explain all those fruits of the Spirit and, and is a great diagnostic tool to show whether or not we are truly saved, whether or not we've been uh, born again, whether or not we've been converted and regenerated. Does our, our life, uh, is it characterized by those deeds of the flesh? Or by the fruits of the Spirit. If we received Him by the power of the Spirit, there will be fruits of the Spirit. Second, you received Him in humble repentance. And I say in humble repentance, not to qualify repentance as if there's any other sort of repentance, because true repentance is humble repentance. But if we've truly repented, there will be humility. There will be true humility. Because in repenting from our sins, we recognize the holiness and the justice of God. That as God told Moses, no one, no one shall see my face and live. Because he's holy, holy, holy. And in understanding who God is, as our holy creator, if there's true repentance, we'll naturally understand our sinfulness. We, we, we don't really see our sinfulness until we see the holiness of God. Because we can easily explain away our sins by generalizing it or saying, you know, well, we're all sinners. You know, it's, it's like, it's like a, almost, I think, you know, if you're in a, a cancer wing and, and someone's, you know, a doctor's trying to, to you know, tell a, a person about a treatment, a cure for cancer, and someone's like, well, you know, we all have cancer. It's like, you're all sinners. Yes, and sin is horrible. That, that's the horror of it, is that we're all sinners. And sin is horrendous because God is holy. We received him through humble repentance by recognizing His holiness, by recognizing our sinfulness, and in recognizing our sinfulness, recognizing our just condemnation and punishment. And this can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit that, that He, as Paul says, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's His kindness to show you your own sin, to show you His holiness. To reveal himself to you that you would repent. 
So we received him by the power of the Spirit, second, by, in humble repentance, and third, received him in dependent faith. Because as the Spirit quickens our dead hearts in it to, to recognize our state before a holy and righteous God, whose judgment we deserve, and the provision for forgiveness that He has offered to us in His Son, we reach out to His Son in dependent faith and call upon Him, trusting in His sacrifice for our sins as the only provision for forgiveness and for our sins. And so we received Him by the power of the Holy Spirit in humble repentance and in dependent faith. And that faith is shown in trusting in not only His sacrifice to pay the sin debt, which we deserve to pay for ourselves in hell, not only trusting in that sacrifice, but trusting in His righteousness that is credited to us. Because it's not just His death that saves us. Our sins need to be dealt with. They need to be punished. As Solomon said, He will bring every act into judgment. As Jesus said, He will judge you for every careless word. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. His judgment is perfect, so He must punish every single sin because of His righteousness. But it's not just that our sins must be punished and paid for, but that we must meet that righteous, holy standard of a perfect life, which only Christ has met. And so we are not only saved by His death, but by His life. And we must trust in that. We must rest in that. We, we received Him by the power of the Holy Spirit in humble repentance and in dependent faith. Charles Spurgeon in his morning and evening devotional, which I highly recommend to you all, said this concerning this verse. The life of faith is represented as receiving an act which implies the very opposite of anything like merit. It is simply the acceptance of a gift. As the earth drinks in the rain, as the sea receives the streams, as night accepts light from the stars, so we, giving nothing, partake freely of the grace of God. The saints are not by nature wells or streams. They are but cisterns into which the living water flows. Heard it. Maybe you've heard it explained that faith is kind of like the empty hand reaching out, seeking God, that, that He would come into our lives. And, and, and that can only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how we are to walk in Christ. We are to walk in Him as we received Him. Just as salvation came to us through the power of the Holy Spirit in humble repentance and dependent faith, that's how we are to walk in Christ. As many preachers have said before, if you've repented from your sins, if you truly repented, you will live a life of repentance. And if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, you will live a life of belief. So Paul tells the Colossians they are to walk in Christ first as they received Him, and second, they are to walk grounded in Him. He says in verse 7, rooted and built up in Him. 
grounded. He uses two metaphors here to describe how they are to be grounded in him. First, they are to be grounded in him like a tree. We are to be grounded in Christ. We are to walk grounded in him like a tree, rooted and built up. In this tree metaphor, we can see it used throughout the Bible, and there are a few characteristics to describe a tree to understand this metaphor a bit more. First, a tree is planted. It's planted. In a sense, there is a sense that a tree does spring up on its own, but it's planted somehow. Either somebody plants it or it comes from a seedling and it drops into the soil and then it grows. And perhaps the, the greatest illustration of this concerning this metaphor and how we are to be like a tree is in Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is not Psalm 1 because it was the first to be written, but because it stands at the front of the Psalter of the hymn book of Israel to explain how someone is to approach the living God. How someone is to live. And Psalm 1 reads this, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And because he does that, because the blessed man lives that way and does these things and meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Notice that the tree did not plant itself. It was planted by the streams of water. And because it's planted by the streams of water, it is able to drink from that living water and to grow and to flourish and to yield fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. We are to be planted, grounded in Christ. We are also to be living and growing. Jesus also uses this metaphor in John chapter 15 about the vine. It's not technically a tree, but it's still a plant, still grows, it still bears fruit. It's still the same metaphor. He says in John 15 and verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You are planted. You are living and growing. This is how we are to be grounded in him. But also, we are to bear fruit. And a, a, a good tree bears good fruit because of its good roots. Because it has good roots. It's the nature of the roots that determines the nature of the fruit. Paul, and as I've said before, these letters, the letter to the church at Colossae and and the letter to the church at Philippi and the letter to the church at Ephesus were all written in prison around the same time. And many of them have similar themes and th- similar lessons. And 
And Paul, as he uses this metaphor of the tree here in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7, he also uses this metaphor of the tree in Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 14 to 19 in his prayer. In his prayer concerning the uh, Ephesian believers, he says this, for this, I, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And as he uses this metaphor in Ephesians 3, we see um, that phrase, being rooted and grounded in love. And we could read that the wrong way and think, oh, well, we, we need to love one another, which is true. But it's not our love in which we are rooted and grounded. It's Christ's love that we may be able to comprehend His love for us. That's what we're rooted in. That's what we're grounded in. That's why Paul says we are to walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, like a tree. Second, he he uses a second metaphor here. He uses a tree. We are to be grounded in Him like a tree. And, And second, we are to be grounded in Him like a building. Rooted, and then built up in Him. This is what built up in Him. It's referring to a a building, a foundation. And just like a tree has certain characteristics, so a building has certain characteristics as well. Every building is laid upon a foundation. It's it's not just built on the ground. Some of the most extensive work for... Uh, building a building is the groundwork, what you don't see. It's preparing the ground to raise this building. It's preparing the foundation. It's digging down. I, I had the, um, one of the privileges of, uh, you know, in, in my um, career in the National Guard of, of going to uh, Army Engineer School, as Army Officer Engineer School, and and learned all about building, and 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 uh, I had to take classes on soil analysis. And, and it's not just digging down the foundation, but they have to analyze the soil. The soil has to be right, and if it's not right, they got to add rocks and and other minerals and things so that that soil is right. That that you you don't just build on anything. You you can't just go. You have to figure out what the ground is like before you even start building. You have to analyze that soil. And and even, you know, when we think about a building and being laid upon a foundation, Jesus, he speaks of this in his Sermon on the Mount, how critical the foundation is, how critical the ground is upon which we are to build our lives. And he's, he's speaking to Jews and he's speaking to believers and he says at the end of, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27, he says this. He says, Every, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And just as Paul is alluding to this metaphor of a building concerning our walk, Christ as well is using this metaphor of a building to refer to our lives. Our lives are the building, and we are to build our lives upon the rock of Christ, upon His words. Because we live in a sin-cursed world, and as Jesus said to His disciples later, in this world you will have trouble, and the storms of life will come, trials will come, challenges will come, and if our house is built upon the rock, if our lives are built upon the rock, the solid foundation of Christ and His words, then those trials and challenges of life will not blow us over. We will stand firm. But if we build our lives upon the shifting sands of the world and its philosophies and worldly wisdom and false religions and things and ideas and philosophies that do not accord with reality, then the storms of life will come and our lives will be destroyed. And we can see this in people that we know, people that we've met, people that we interact with, and their lives are in shambles because they built their lives upon worldly wisdom other philosophies and their own desires and not upon Christ, not upon the solid rock. So Paul has good reason to use this metaphor of a building. And we are to be grounded in him, fixed and firm like a building is. And a building is not only laid upon a foundation and is fixed and firm, but it it, it is built up. It is built up so that... Um, It can be utilized so that others can see it. Paul uses this metaphor in um, his letter to Ephesians as well, talking about um, the whole church in our lives. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are to walk first as we received him, as you received him, you are to walk in him. Second, we are to walk grounded in him like a a tree, like a a building built upon the rock of Christ. And third, we are to walk established in Him. He says, established in the faith, just as you were taught. Just as you were taught. Just as I taught you, just as Epaphras taught you, just as the Word of God came to you, Colossians, you are to be established in Him, in Christ. This is how you are to walk. 
as you received him, grounded in him, and established in him. In his commentary on this passage concerning these two verses, Curtis Vaughn writes this. He says, Paul makes his appeal in light of the foregoing discussion. The Colossians had received Christ in a certain manner, as the anointed of God, Christ, as the historic Savior, Jesus, and as the sovereign Lord. Paul's appeal is that they continue to live, walk in Him in the same manner. That is to say, he wants their present and continuous conduct to conform to the doctrine taught them at the beginning. The doctrine they had committed themselves to at conversion. We never never graduate from the gospel. We just learn more and more about it and its depths. Curtis Vaughn goes on to say, and he says, This in the faith, this phrase in the faith, conceives of faith as the body of truth, the faith system, and looks on this as the sphere in which the being strengthened takes place. Some versions render it your faith, suggesting faith in its more usual sense of trust in and reliance on Christ. The whole appeal was to be carried out in accordance with what had been taught the Colossians in their initial experience as you were taught. And and as I I said before, and and you can hear in in many sermons and books concerning the letter to the Colossians that that Paul wrote this letter to, to fortify them, to strengthen them against the heresies that they were being assaulted with. The, the Gnostics proclaiming different things about Christ, uh, Jewish asceticism uh, saying that, uh, yes, that you received Christ, but now you have to follow the law and, all, all, and the legalistic behaviors that come with this. Paul saying, no, you, you walk in Christ as you were taught in the beginning, as you heard the gospel, as you received him by faith and humble repentance, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You walk in Him, grounded in Him. He is your, in a sense, your, your rock, your soil from which you nourish yourself, that, that living water from which the, the roots of the tree of your life uh, drinks and, and gains nutrients. You, he, he is the, the rock upon which the, the, the foundation and the building of your life is being built. You walk in Him, established in Him, in the faith. And we are established in the faith in two ways. First, in right doctrine. Because he says, as you were taught, you are to be established, to be grounded, to be rooted, to be built up, to be uh, sanctified, fortified, strengthened in right doctrine. Right doctrine concerning the truth about Jesus Christ. Everything everything Paul just explained in in Colossians 1 and verses 13 to 23 concerning the preeminence of Christ, the greatness of Christ, the nature of Christ, His works, His words, His promises, what He has done, what He will do, what He is currently doing. All these truths about Jesus Christ and who He is, we are to be established in. We, we are to be established in right doctrine concerning salvation in Christ alone. That there's no other Jesus, though the world has many Jesuses and the cults have Jesuses, and there's only one true Jesus, what the Scriptures say, what Paul has just uh, proclaimed concerning Jesus, that 
as Peter had said in the book of Acts in 4.12, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's one Savior, one Christ, one Lord, one Master, one King. And Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We are to be established in Him in right doctrine concerning the right Christ, not the false Christs of the cults. Not the false Christ of the Gnostics. As Paul told Timothy, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. We are to be established in Him concerning right doctrine, concerning who He is, concerning salvation in Him alone, concerning sanctification and growth through Christ. So we are established in the faith, first in right doctrine, and second in right practice. Because right practice, living out our faith, flows from right doctrine. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1, in verses 9 to 10, he he tells them, he says, And so from the day we heard concerning their faith and, and what God was doing in that church and how that church was planted and is growing and they're being built up, he says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That we increase in the knowledge of God in right doctrine as we put that right doctrine to practice and right practice and we um, bear fruit. This, This... this right practice, the, the, the way we live, it, it's according to His commands. It's according to the Word of God. As John said in 1 John 2.6, he says, whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. We are established in the faith, in Him, in our right doctrine, in our right practice by following His commandments. This goes back to what Paul said in verse 6 that we are to walk in Him according to Christ's commandments. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love our enemies. We are also to imitate the faithful. We are to imitate those faithful saints who are walking in Christ's commandments because as Paul prays in in Colossians 1.9 that that they would understand the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Sometimes it's, it's not so clear how we are to walk in those, what we would call the gray areas, the gray issues. But God has given us teachers. And there's people who are more mature than us. That we are to imitate them as they imitate Christ. As Paul said to the Philippians, he said, in Philippians 4.9, he said, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And that comes on the tail end of, of that passage concerning um, what we are to do with our anxious thoughts and how we are to combat anxiety by dwelling on those things with the, which are right and true and good and noble and to practice those things. 
imitating the faithful. And then we are to persevere and excel still more in our right practice. As Paul, and it's interesting, you read enough of Paul and, and many of his letters take the same um, sort of outline and flow of thought. Almost all of them are divided up into um, orthodoxy, right doctrine, and then orthopraxy, right practice. He tells us the truths about Christ and our salvation, and then he teaches us how we are to live in light of those truths and how we are to apply those truths. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says to the Thessalonians, he says, finally then, brothers, after he had finished instructing them, he said, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. We never arrive. There's, there's no arrival point in the Christian life, at least on, here on this earth. And, and so often we are um, tempted and deceived by an arrival point in our lives. Once we get to a certain point, then we can rest and we can take it easy and we can relax and whew, then we'll truly live. <laughs> we, it doesn't end until we're in heaven. We always have to continue to press on and excel still more. And, and just think of that can be discouraging, but when we embrace it, it can be encouraging. It's like, okay, I, now I understand the truth. That I, I just need to press on in this marathon race. And it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So we press on. So we are to walk first as you received him, second, grounded in him, third, established in him, and fourth, we are to walk. Always thanking Him. Always. We're to be abounding in thanksgiving. At the end of verse 7 in chapter 2, abounding. And this, this word abounding, abounding is a, is a great translation, but it could also be seen as overflowing. Overflowing, which is kind of similar to abounding. It's, it's interesting how you know, the English language has so many synonyms. And uh, one, one of my... my greatest tools that I use in sermon prep is um, my favorite dinosaur, the saurus. <laughs> and I like the saurus. <laughs> and it helps me, it helps, but there is a true translation, and, and abounding is good, overflowing is good. That this thankfulness should just overflow out of our hearts and out of our mouths and out of our minds that we are always to be thanking God for everything. Puritan Matthew Henry wrote this in his commentary. He said, observe, being established in the faith, we must abound therein and approve in it more and more in this with thanksgiving. The way to have the benefit and comfort of God's grace is to be much in giving thanks for it. We must join thanksgiving to all our improvements and be sensible of the mercy of all our privileges and attainments. Thanksgiving should be, it should be a key characteristic of a Christian. You know, the Bible says that they, they will know us by our love for one another. They should know us by our thanksgiving. Even, even as we prepare for this holiday of Thanksgiving, that's, 
That's a Christian holiday. That didn't come from any other religion. That's a truly Christian holiday. And you can look throughout church history and see prayers of thanksgiving, times of thanksgiving, feasts of thanksgiving. We're to always be giving thanks. We're to always be thanking Him. That's how we are to walk. And we are to thank Him for what He has done. We are to thank Him for what He has done in creation. As, as Paul writes in, in Colossians 1, 16-17, showing uh, who Christ is as our Creator and all the things He has done in creation, all the things He has created, and all the things He sustains in creation. We are to thank Him for all those specific details regarding creation. We are to thank Him in for what He has done in salvation, in saving us. In Colossians 1 and 21 to 23, that, as Paul says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. I mean, what, what more could you be thankful for than salvation? I mean, just... Salvation alone ought to give you a lifetime of thanksgivings. Constant thankfulness. We are to thank Him for what He has done in creation and salvation. And then in providence, as He guides us and He directs our paths. And oftentimes we can look at our lives and our current circumstances and even dwell upon um, things not being what we would want them to be, not, not having what we would want to have, and, and we forget all the ways He has led us in the past, all the ways He has provided for us, the, the, the places He has brought us. His providence is amazing. We're to always be thanking Him for what He has done, for what He is doing. What He is doing in, in, in Building his church, and, and especially in church life and ministry and, and just um, serving, we can easily get bogged down. We can easily get discouraged that things aren't going the way that we want them to. We, we don't see the fruit of our labors. You know, I, I think of, of children's ministry and, and those, those little ones you go in and you take care of, and, and um, sometimes, you know, children's ministry workers, they can easily get. Um, burnt out and overburdened, and you don't always see the fruit. But when you hear the testimony of a teenager or a young adult about all the things they heard in Awana or in Sunday school, when you hear that little one repeating that song that his Sunday school teacher taught him, that's, that's amazing that, that, that Christ is building his church. He's always working. He's always building it building in the, in the young ones and the old ones and everyone in between, the rebellious ones and the faithful ones. He's always building. He never stops. And, and, and even if a, a church is declining, there's other churches that are increasing. He's always building his church. He's always interceding for his people constantly before the throne of God for us. He intercedes on our behalf. Just to think of, you know, what to contemplate, what, what is Christ praying for us right now? He never stops. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. We are to always be thanking Him for what He has done, for what He is 
doing currently in our lives and for what he will do. That, that is, Paul wrote to the Philippians that, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If you have been justified, you will be glorified. As Peter writes, and as, you know, was writing, Moses wrote originally, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's, and we read that as a command, and it, it surely is a command, that we shall be holy for he is holy. But that's also a promise, that you're going to be holy <laughs> because he's holy. It may take your whole life, it may, it may be at the end of your life, but um, as I've heard other preachers say, you know, um, when I get to heaven, um, telling their parishioners or their, 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 their body, um, sorry for using the term parishioners, it just came out, but <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Uh, you know, preachers telling their people that, um, you know, I might not recognize you when, you, when we get to heaven, <laughs> but, but you'll be there. <laughs> and you will, if you're in Christ, you will be there. And that's just that alone is enough to thank him for. So we are to walk as we received him. We are to walk grounded in him. We are to walk established in him. We are to walk always thanking him. It's amazing the, the, the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God and revealed in salvation to sinners like us. It's so easy to dwell upon ourselves. And even in considering our walk and how we are to walk, we can easily get it wrong by dwelling on ourselves and our performance and, oh, I didn't do this right or I didn't do that right or, you know, um, this day just went kaput. But we're not to walk in him dwelling on ourselves. <laughs> it's a contradiction. We're to dwell on him and his work in us and through us, and then we can, we can uh, rightly perceive our walk and evaluate our walk as we look in him and through him and through his word. We're to measure our sanctification not in days and weeks, but in months and years. As has been said before, you've probably heard that saying, you know, um, I'm not what I'm supposed to be, but thank God I'm not what I was. We are to continue to press on. Puritan J.C. Philpot, he writes this concerning these verses. He says, Again, as the more deeply and widely that a tree spreads its roots into the soil, the more nourishment does it suck up. So it is with a believing heart. The more Christ is laid hold of by faith, the more the soul roots down into him, and the firmer hold it takes of him. And the more deeply it roots into him, the stronger it stands. And the more heavenly nourishment it draws out of his fullness. This is being rooted in Christ. A religion must always be a shallow, deceptive, and ruinous religion if it has not Christ to root in. For then it must be rooted in self. But if it is planted and rooted in Christ, then there is a sufficiency, a suitability, a glorious fullness in him in which the soul may take the deepest root and not only for a time, but for eternity. For such a faith can never be confounded. Such a love can never perish. And such a hope be never put to shame. 
our hope, our faith, our walk, everything about us as believers is to be in Christ. We're to walk in Him, rooted and grounded in Him, built up in Him, established in the faith, always abounding in thanksgiving. And we can only do that if we are truly in Christ. There may be some of you here today that you're walking in self. You're walking in self-styled religion. You're walking in rules. You're, you're trying to earn favor with God on your own merit because you're not in Christ. And you need to turn to Christ and to live in Christ and to hope in Christ and to trust in Christ and to cast yourself upon Christ because He is the only name under heaven by which you must be saved. You must come to Him and seek Him while He may be found, to call upon Him while He is near. And, and, and if, if you have, if you are in Christ, then you need to continue to walk in Him. Because He is everything. He is the beginning, the end, the middle, the alpha and the omega, everything about the Christian life and everything about creation. Because all creation will glorify Christ one day. And you will either glorify Him as one preacher said, by bowing the knee in humble submission and, and, and worship to Him as the Lord and Master of all creation, or you will bow to Him as your knees are broken in hell forever. But all will glorify Christ. He will receive His glory one way or another. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You that You Lord of glory, showed us mercy. You showed us grace. That we who were once far off have been brought near. We don't deserve to be there. We, we, we never will. We don't deserve to hear your gospel. We don't deserve to have this, 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 these terms of peace extended to us. We don't deserve the privilege of worshiping you or proclaiming your name or even um, evangelizing other lost sinners. But you and your mercy and your grace have um, called us to yourself. And you're calling other sinners. Lord, help us to live in Christ, to hope in Christ, to walk in Christ, to proclaim Christ, to honor Christ in all that we think, say, and do. It's in his name we pray.